happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 168 for March 11th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, joining you from what is currently COVID-less Missoula, Montana, where I am the curriculum, I think I already said I was the Curriculum Director, whatever it is, I'm on the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana, and joining me as as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you this evening? Good evening, Jason. I am absolutely delighted that you are here and glad that I turned on my iRig mic. Again, shout out to Peggy George for pointing that out. I guess had done some, some reconfigurations. And anyway, coming from Oklahoma City, where we have no idea how many uh, coronavirus uh, instances we may have, because I don't think the testing kits have been available and people have been calming folks by saying, and we just only have, you know, one in Oklahoma. And, you know, that that footnote should say because we haven't tested very many folks. So we have been feverishly planning the last two weeks at school to have learning at home or remote learning. And so my Geek of the Week relates to some resources that um, I've been building. And I am uh, I'm, I'm actually... You know, there's all kinds of mixed feelings, but on a purely instructional level, I'm looking forward to the opportunity that that I will have with our teachers to learn a lot of stuff. And, you know, having been the director of distance learning for five years at the Texas Tech College of Education, I feel like uh, I, I have been preparing for this time and it's genuinely going to be a, a time of learning. So can you tell us a little bit about where, where you have been? And then we need the requisite Montana weather report because spring has sprung here in central Oklahoma. The Bradford pears are the trees that tell us spring is here. And I actually went to a friend's house after work today and like he has two in his front yard and the pungent odor, you know, just about knocked me over. So that activates everybody's allergies. And so if you're not being affected by coronavirus, uh, you know, the Bradford pears will get you. So how's life in Montana right now? Are you guys done with winter? Uh, we are not done with winter. Um, it is raining outside right now and 39 degrees, but I know over the weekend, I'm just seeing what the low is going to be. Uh, Sunday morning will hit one degree. So I think a little winter reprise is in our relatively what? near future. You're hit one so degree? it'll be chilly. Uno. Oh, yep. okay. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So it'll be cold. Um, and, uh, uh, that's, it's, that's kind of how Montana spring goes, that it's very rarely a simple open and shut case. So, um, but you know, that's the way it goes. So, um, I, so, uh, and I had actually had some people reach out to me on Twitter directly. Um, I am immunely suppressed American. Is that the term? My, my immunity is suppressed because I am a kidney transplant recipient, as we've talked on the show in the past. And um, so obviously I take the the, the coronavirus thing uh, seriously from the standpoint of I am an identified risk case, according to both the CDC and state and local officials in Montana. So I'm looking carefully at this, but obviously since I... I am a current distance learning guy. Um, I've spent a lot of last week thinking about my organization and also finding ways we can help support Montana schools in this. And Wes, you used a term I'm really glad you used because I think it's a really important thing to, to make a distinction about. You said remote learning. 
um, as, as the term of what I consider to be the term of art now, because it's really important to make a distinction between, uh, remote teaching and distance learning. It, there's, there's something similar there in online learning classes. That's all kind of a different piece. And my guess is, is that there will be a lot of discussions in the coming hours, days, weeks, and months, um, uh, about you know, the concept of distance learning. And we haven't talked about as much here on the podcast, but one of the things that I'm very passionate about is that I think the debate is rather trite on whether uh, distance learning and face-to-face learning can be equivalent or the same. There's a lot of research that suggests that it's it, it depends on which questions you ask, and there isn't a definitive answer really about that. But in my mind, because of how important distance learning is to uh, people in rural areas, people that have unique circumstances, people that don't fit the traditional boxes of, of, of public school, then for me, I think it's important we make distance learning online learning the best it can be. And so I'm looking forward to, and I have been watching through these discussions uh, quite uh, adamantly in the last week, especially watching high schools and, and colleges plan with their faculty about what it might look like to send their students home and attempt to continue an environment. So um, that's kind of where my discussions are right now. And I just shared this on Facebook tonight. We have two students, two children, first time to have two in college. Uh, thankfully, one will be graduating in May. Not sure what, hopefully this is going to allow us to go out to Colorado in May. <clears throat> We've made the decision not to leave Friday to go see him, but he is at the Colorado School of Mines. They have just announced today um, that they are not going to close campus, but they are going to go all online as of March the 30th. Um, I hope they'll still have access to his robotics lab. I mean, he's a mechanical engineering major with a, um, with a computer science minor. So uh, anyway, it, that's, that's going to be interesting. Um, our, our older daughter is a freshman here in Oklahoma city in Edmond at the university of central Oklahoma. They just announced today they're going to extend their spring break a week to actually, I think, help the, their professors and instructors get ready better, which that that actually sounds good. I think it was uh, John Becker on Twitter mentioned last week, like teaching online is not a little light switch that you can flip. You know, you don't just, oh, I think I'll just teach everything online. I mean, it's huge. Uh, and so anyway, I think that's good. But so they're going to be out for two weeks and then probably going online. And so. Yes, it is an exciting time to be in education. I would say, Jason, it's a good time to know some things about distance learning. And um, one of the things I, I want to pick your brain about, maybe, and we could do it later, but is this like some of the support resources that you all have for like web browsers. And because we right now are, are talking about what our online support will look like, not only for our faculty, but for students and for parents. And we are wanting to to, uh, you know, draw some, some clear lines and boundaries. A couple, maybe about a month ago, we visited uh, four schools in the Dallas area, one of which is a, a bring-your-own-device school for middle and high school. It's called Parish Episcopal School. And that was one of the clear things they said is, you know, when you're touching someone's personal device, you draw clear lines because the last thing that you want is for anybody to say, oh, well, it was working fine until Dr. Fryer came and, you know, messed it up. So... Right. Anyway, um, maybe af- afterwards or whatever, I'll, I'll if, if you've got any of those kind of resources, because we're, you know, basically we've asked everybody, do you have high-speed internet? Can you run the Chrome browser? Um, and then for our younger kids, they can they could be using an iPad. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I would never have thought we would be in this situation 
in my current school because we uh, we surveyed our faculty with the readiness survey and 33% have not been using an online platform for any kind of resource sharing. They've, right. they've done grades um, and, and shared what the assignment is, but yeah, we, we have some real good opportunities to work with our faculty and, um, you know, help and our students. And I, I think it, I think it's going to be very, very positive, but the support side of it is somewhat nerve wracking yep. when you think about how many folks you're talking about and that we're really right. not geared up or we haven't been geared up to do that. Well, and, and you make a really important point that I do think is, is been missing in the larger conversation about getting ready for this kind of remote teaching, remote learning uh, uh, situation in that if you're assuming your students are bringing with them extraordinary talents to handle this stuff on your own, you are very much mistaken. And um, and I'll give you an example of this. Uh, uh, MTDA, uh, we serve, uh, well, across the program, it's, it's, it's over 10,000 individuals across the state, but specific to our distance learning program, it's about 3,500 students a year. And yes, a good percentage of them do just fine. Uh, finding their finding access, figuring out the, the basics of, of the technology, the difference between a desktop and a browser, those things I think that get taken granted quite a bit in, in, in teaching uh, computer skills, K-12. But there will be students that will struggle fairly mightily with this. And, um, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, it, it's not majority of students, but there will be a, a certainly a notable uh, minority of students that will use technology excuses in a way that you will have never seen before, because anything that goes wrong with the technology um, you know, tends to become a, an excuse to not complete work. It's not the dog ate my homework. It's yeah. the, the Chrome browser, you know, failed right. to render. Yeah. 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 And, and you'll hear, you'll start to notice patterns over time. And that's one of the things that's, that's, that's uh, uh, actually interesting about my job is that I don't directly run the help desk much anymore, but when I am on the help desk and the, the years where I was primarily in charge of that, um, as it turns out, you start to learn which excuses mean what and um, which uh, technology claims mean what, but it is really important to remember you're going to have to support your students through this. And the other piece of this is, is that the most struggling of students um, will need even more assistance because it's not just that the computer piece of it, although that's significant, it's that many of those students may not feel comfortable in the online environment or don't know how to ask questions or are uncomfortable with the barriers that technology can introduce. And that's where I think we need to be thoughtful and cautious um, when we, we take take these types of projects on, and I, and I get it. If 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 we have a pandemic at play, you there are some going to have to be some compromises. That's the way it's going to have to work, right? Um, but at the same time, I think we need to be very thoughtful about supporting all all of the individuals, uh, adults and children, through this process. Absolutely. Well, we are going to be touching, I'm sure, more on those kinds of issues. We want to let people know they can go to edtechsr.com slash links to access the Google Doc, where until five minutes ago, Jason had added all the links, and I've been feverishly using my lovely uh, Chromebook. So, you know, Jason, it's great, you know? My Chromebook comes in handy. I had to actually pull it out for a, a meeting this week. Um, but we're going to be talking about some different topics. So, actually... Where would you like to go? What would you like first, Alex? We have breaking news, COVID-19 stuff, educational implications for COVID-19, Chrome OS, Apple, security, tech industry, something, something, nerddom, and media. So what will it be, Dr. Neifer? Let's go ahead and do a couple of quick COVID articles, and let's be done with this for the night. Um, there's a really great Good article. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, there's a really great article on The Verge. 
um, uh, today's uh, edition of The Verge. And um, it doesn't directly apply to education. The article is called How to Work from Home. And um, it I, I did work for home a good percentage of my early days with my current position. I was living in one town and working in another. And although I did spend usually one to five days a week um in my physical office, I did work out of the home quite a bit. And I don't, I, I have the ability to do so with my current job. I don't do nearly as much as I used to. But I will say working at home sounds like a panacea when sometimes it can be really difficult to stay productive at home. And I thought this Verge article did an extraordinarily good job of, of kind of breaking down how you should, uh, um, uh, uh, kind of handle yourself should you be a teacher and administrator and find yourself, you know, stuck behind a laptop for eight hours a day. So just the broad headlines here. And again, I agree hundred percent with all of these first, as much as you can have a separate workspace. It's like a dedicated office space. Don't work in your living space. Right. I know that's not possible depending on what your life circumstances are, the size of your home, whether you have kids or um, you know, what factors may play in that. And obviously it's a pandemic. So that could impact too. Um, uh, uh, you know, who's all in your house at any given time. That's an important piece. Um, second one is you should establish a routine. Um, don't assume that, you know, you can roll out of bed at 7.59 and start working at 8, and that's going to be a long-term successful strategy. Let me be clear, I've done that before working at home, but I am much more productive when I get up at a consistent time every day and I have my cup of coffee and I kind of clear my head before I sit down for work at 8. And then on the opposite end of that, you really need to be done at 5 p.m. every day or whatever your work hours are established. I know you're a teacher. I know you probably have homework to grade and those sorts of pieces, but you need to do your best to try to leave it alone if all of your students find yourself suddenly online. I think that's that's an extremely important. I would also encourage you to, I assume that if you're trying a remote teaching gig based on district guidance, you probably have Google Classroom or Microsoft Teams or one of the main messenger systems or Remind 101 or one of those systems set up for communication. Do yourself a favor and either turn off the notifications on your phone or at least turn them off after, let's say, at 6 p.m. at night. You do not want to become a 24-hour worker just because you're a digital worker, and that's really important. And considering if we get to this point where there is wide attempts at this remote teaching concept, it probably means there's other stresses in our environment, and you don't want to uh, uh, compound that by then working you know, 18-hour days. Um, uh, this is actually something I used to do too. Dress the part. Don't just be in your PJs. Get into work clothes every day so you can set a differential, right, uh, between 7.59 and 8 a.m. every morning. Uh, make sure you know your body and if you need to get up and walk because my guess is, is that as a classroom teacher, you're probably on your feet quite a bit. Now that you're going to be sitting down and doing most of the work in that way, you need to be up. Um, I try to take at least a, a two or three minute jaunt every 30 minutes at my desk job um, each and every day. Um, I walk usually for 20 minutes every three or four hours. I also take a big walk at lunch. I need to be up and around. If you can set up a standing desk, not the fancy ones, you can certainly purchase one of those, but you can look online for DIY uh, standing desks. And even stacking up textbooks and putting your laptop on top would be better than sitting down all day, although there is some disagreement about that now. Um, and then also make sure you have all the tools that you need. And one of the pieces of advice that we're following at work is that we think that there's a chance that something could happen that means we would lose access to our office without the ability to go in and get stuff. And so I'm asking all of my folks 
to carry their laptop home with them every night, make sure they have kind of a, um, what I would call a war bag with them, like all the things you need to get your job done in a bag so that, you know, and you're carrying it back and forth with you to home to work. And, you know, um, um, I, you know, not, um, you know, not everyone is going to carry, you know, extra stuff with them. And in fact, I'm okay because I have, you know, a plurality of computers at home that can help me out here. But assuming you're just using a school laptop, for example, make sure your charger comes home with you every night. Make sure your laptop itself comes with you every night. Prepare for being a home worker. Wow. Is that all in that article and or is that yeah. a lot of your? Yeah, I mean, it's all in that article. But Did you write that? I did not write that. So, wow. Um, but it's so good. And it's like, it, it, it's when I did work at home, I, uh, um, um, I, well, I struggled a little bit, right? I was someone that's like, wow, I can get up at 7.59, work at eight. And then I wouldn't shower sometimes in the morning. And in fact, we, I know, a. Uh, someone that works at, he works now at, at Open LMS. He was at Moodle Rooms and then Blackboard and then at Moodle and then back to Open LMS. Uh, and he had a phrase that we actually adopted in our organization. He called it one sock mode that when you get up in the morning and you check your email before you get going and then suddenly it's 11 a.m. and you only have one sock on and you're not, you know, you've already deep in you know, whatever is your day. And my guess is if you're a teacher, you're going to be pretty engaged with your students. Um, I think, um, 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 I, you have to, you have to be able to, to find a way to put yourself mentally in that space. So what a phenomenal article, ladies and yeah. gentlemen, Dr. Jason Neifer, guru of, of, of remote learning. So do you, you like remote learning better than distance learning then for what you're doing at the, well, no, that's, no. we, we, we prefer like online classes, distance learning. That's what we do. Okay. But yeah. the, the folks that are going to try to like put their classes online and maybe meet, uh, yeah. real time with their students. We consider that to be remote teaching. And, and part of the reason why there's a differential there too, um, we, well, we've read a lot of stuff on this in the last obviously 96 hours, but one of the things that is also very much happening is that a lot of districts know that if they move to remote teaching or some kind of online piece, they may lose half their kids, right? Because they don't have access at home. Um, and providing that access might prove to be extraordinarily expensive. And so I know I read an article today that the superintendent in Seattle, who is Denise Juno, she's the former state superintendent in Montana, Seattle's going to go a different route because they know that trying to re- rely on, on, on online pieces will leave a significant number of their school population behind. So they're working on learning packets. They're, they want to have the papers, the ultimate technology, right? Cause it's extremely portable and it works without a battery and doesn't require a cell signal. And so I think a mix of strategies is really important here. Wow. Wow. That is phenomenal. All right. Well, we're going to have some other coronavirus related topics. Uh, I think I want to go to a security one. And this is, this is pretty amazing. So <clears throat> I put this, um, down on, yeah, under the security title. This is from CyberScoop on March 10th. Microsoft strikes back at Meeker's botnet by preemptively disabling hacking tools. Wow. How many of our students and teachers know what a botnet is? know why they're so malicious and bad, and then recognize how updates on our own devices, that's not just our laptops and desktop computers, that's our, you know, our mobile devices, uh, that's now our Internet of Things. All of these devices that connect to the Internet can become part of botnets. And a botnet is 
a collection of compromised devices. So this is a really amazing article. And it also points, we've talked about this on the show before, to white hat hacking and also the transnational nature of global cybercrime, right? It's, it's just the hostility and malicious intent, which is present now online and literally can reach in to everyone's pocket purse, backpack and house and school, I think is very underappreciated. And so this is a, this is an outstanding article and kudos to Microsoft for this very sophisticated campaign that took, you know, tons of time and collaboration. I think they said, um, During a 58-day period in our investigation, for example, they observed that one of these infected computers sent a total of 3.8 million spam emails to over 40.6 million potential victims. And the collaboration that they worked with involved over 35 different companies. And, you know, it's just, it's staggering. They they actually at Microsoft um, say that, I guess, the computers... They generated 6 million new domains. Oh, this is what they did that were likely to be taken over by the scammers and in the next two years. And so anyway, multi-year project, tons of countries, like the scope of this. And so amidst the news, right, of number one, coronavirus, number two, elections and, you know, who's going right. to win right. the Democratic primary and, and all of this. I mean, like, we're not even going to talk about foreign policy, but like we've just... We're attempting to sign a peace agreement in Afghanistan to end what 40 plus years of warfare. Uh, like there's, there's really big headlines that are happening outside of the main ones. And so this is an article that you probably didn't see and you might not pay attention to. I think it's, it's definitely worth your time. And, uh, Jason, what are the implications of, of botnets and their existence to us? Is there, you might even have an article in, in the lineup that relates in some way to perhaps wiping devices or, or spring cleaning? Sure. Well, there? Um, I did post an article, which I got a decent response back about that says, this is from Wired on March 8th. Um, I love this. Reset your computer once a year for a happier life. And by reset, they mean wipe your computer reinstall the operating system, reinstall all the programs. And I know that I do this. I know that Dr. Fryer does this because I've seen him post uh, like lists of apps before that he saves just so he knows what to reinstall. And then now that I'm a Chromebook guy, that's literally a, a sign-in, and it takes about six minutes for everything to restore to exactly the way it was before, which is one of the reasons why I love the Chrome platform. But I can tell you as a Windows user, and to a lesser extent, but also important, a Mac user, about every 12 to 18 months, I find it not just useful, but also a time saving to spend a morning wiping my computer, starting over again with a fresh version of the operating system with the latest drivers available from the manufacturer. And what that does, it has several advantages to it. One of which is that you uh, guarantee your computer will run faster. Um, that as you install software, whether you keep it installed or uninstall it, and as updates are installed over time and security patches, that there's a lot of cruft that builds up in an operating system. Whether you're a Mac person or a PC person, it is uh, absolutely uh, true of both sides of, of that equation. And uh, it will run faster. 
Um, it is less likely that software will have errors and issues because you install fresh versions of, of, of that software and oftentimes updated versions of that software. And there are cases where from a safety and security standpoint, there might be something malware wise or, you know, unfortunately installed something or another code, uh, plugin, um, uh, uh, botnet software could be hiding around somewhere that you will get rid of by just regularly uh, 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 resetting your device. Now, I have to say, it's not necessarily for the faint of heart, but there are extraordinary instructions online. There's so many guides from so many websites on how to do this. And I also think if you only have basic troubleshooting skills right now, learning how to do this, assuming you're backing everything up and you're safe, go safely about that process, you will learn so much about troubleshooting computers, things that go wrong, um, and how you can fix those things. So yes, great advice, I think. And I know, Wes, you had said that you were into this too. And funny, you should mention that because uh, the last pretty much two weeks of my life, and this will sound like such a, you know, developing developed world issue. Uh, I have not had a, a functioning Siri companion and I have learned that my normal has been completely reset by voice to text. I have been just struggling to, you know, use this thing called a keyboard on my phone to type into it. Uh, so literally we finally said, Hey, time to, to get rid of the iPhone seven uh, cheapest new phone from Apple is an eight. So I got a, a pretty nice trade in price. And what I'm doing literally right now, as we, we webcast, because I, well, I might not download all of my apps right now, right? Because that's bandwidth wise on our network. Maybe not the best idea when you're doing a video conference, but what is so cool having everything backed up to iCloud, this isn't Chrome in terms of just log in and it's all there, but the, you know, Apple with, with a full iCloud backup is fantastic. So I have another device, an iPad, and I can go ahead and, un and continue. And it's just, in, and it's going to connect and recognize, Oh, you're setting up a phone and it's going to let me, you know, transfer my information. It's all going to download. So it can take a couple hours actually to do that. And so that's a like, you know, it's, it's a different technology. It's a whole different ecosystem. Uh, we're still continuing to have discussions about, you know, what is it that we would like to be setting up, you know, in, in, uh, you know, potentially a, a year and a half. Uh, do we want to have a, an iOS universe? Do we want to have a Chrome universe? We, we have both now. Um, so anyway. Very good. What what else? Anything sure. else on the security front or somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, a couple of security articles that are pretty good. Uh, CNET has an article from, let's see, this is from today that I thought was kind of interesting. It it tries to to take a take advantage of um, old password advice and reverse it because the password times have changed. I thought this was interesting. I'm not entirely certain if I agree with these or not, but I think they're worthy of discussion. Um, the three things that, that they used to say... Um, um, that you shouldn't do that you, you can do or that you can do now. The first one is writing down passwords. Um, and they were talking about a, that, uh, and they, I've seen these things for sale, but like uh, storing passwords in a password book or in a little notebook, I'm partial to, to miniature notebooks, which I carry one around with me all the time. Um, but it, having a, your long password 
in a little portfolio or in a little um, a password saving notebook and then storing that somewhere safe, a safe, a lockbox, a hidden location in your home is a better strategy than having a really easy to remember password. Um, and I thought that was interesting. That's in fact what my parents do, um, with their super secure passwords. And, um, I would say when I first saw them do it, it felt a little old fashioned, but I do think it's a smart strategy, especially if your goal is to have a different password everywhere. Now don't put your password on sticky notes, stick on your monitor. That's not good advice. And for those of you that watched, uh, uh, the last season or I'm uh, sorry, early season of Silicon Valley, you know, that's kind of a funny joke, um, uh, uh, uh about that show, but don't do that. Um, do share accounts, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I, uh, they were talking about, uh, from a password security standpoint, um, having a, a, what you can do for a password that to share and what that does for security. And also that a lot of places allow you to share accounts, like especially within family. So that's okay to do. And then the last one that actually has been advice that I've heard several times in the last couple of years, um, is don't constantly change your passwords. And I have seen security researchers say that, you know, once a year, once every two or three years, that's realistic. But the folks that are having the people change passwords every 90 days or, or, or every half year, they're just encouraging people to create less secure passwords. And so that's an important thing. To, to, and to put them on sticky notes and put them on their monitor. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. Encourages all the other slappy, slappy, sloppy security habits that we've talked about here on the show. So I thought that was interesting and certainly, certainly interesting. And the last one that I want to mention for just a moment, because uh, I feel like I'm kind of the um, the Pied Piper of uh, uh, bad Android apps, but really interesting article from Gizmodo on March 9th that there was a single Android developer that had made like a, a two dozen VPN apps and they worked as VPNs, but the problem is they also tracked all your behavior and reported it back to the company. So they were essentially spy apps. And we've talked about the need for VPNs here before. And in fact, in a presentation I gave last week, I talked about the importance of VPNs. But remember, and this is especially true to share with kids because they're unlikely to pay for a VPN, find a reputable VPN company read reviews on them, do your research, and pay for a VPN. Do not use a cheap, free VPN, which is fairly likely to either be so slow it's unusable, or if it does seem pretty fast, it's trading something away to give you that for free. Absolutely. I feel like I'm a bit of the media literacy guy, so I'm going to probably do a, <laughs> a couple articles here. Um, and, uh, you know, politics is going on. We're not a political show, but hey, you know, technology impacts politics. So sometimes we talk about this stuff. Uh, this is a foreign policy article from March 9th. So Jason, with his debate uh, history, will probably like that. The title is called Truth Has Become a Coronavirus Casualty. Uh, from Beijing to Washington, governments have been muzzling scientists, inflating the success of their containment efforts and discrediting valid reporting. Citizens have to fight back. So, you know, we've this is a this is a, if I have a broken record on the show, besides talking about security, be safe, probably uh, it's it's this idea of media literacy and how we all need to be talking about media literacy and seizing the teachable moment. And so um, the story of of how the coronavirus in China was delayed in its reporting uh, because literally the Chinese government was putting people in prison who were reporting it and talking about it. And then finally it became such a big deal that the president had to reverse course and, <clears throat> you know, announce that um, they 
you'll, you'll be in trouble if you don't, you know, report this and, and just, you know, do a 180. Um, this is a great article about that history. Uh, and then also talking about Iran and the ways in which they, you know, both have tried to muzzle doctors. But unfortunately, folks, this isn't limited to China and Iran. What we've, you know, seen happen. I, I heard this on NPR today. I don't know if you caught it and I don't have this in the show notes, but some, some uh, leading, you know, scientists and medical, I think they're, you know, medical, uh, organizational leaders were testifying before the United States Congress today. And in the middle of the hearing, they were called to an emergency meeting at the White House. And then they had to cut their testimony short and leave to go meet with someone at the White House. Um, the, the, one of the pullout, you know, quotes from this article says, what's new and deeply disturbing is that the virus of disinformation has infected the highest levels of Western government like the United States. So this isn't a situation where we can just look at China and Iran and say, oh, you guys are so terrible. You know, look at how you, you know, mishandled this. Um, we really need to stand up for for the media and for the idea that we have good quality journalism. Um, I have been pointing my fifth and sixth grade students because we're not getting into the deep weeds of of disinformation in terms of the weaponization of it and and political dark arts and, you know, talking talking uh, Cambridge Analytica. OK, I'm not going there with my fifth and sixth graders. They see memes about it and they're aware of that kind of stuff. We're talking a lot more about just advertising and influence and the ways in which, you know, media is crafted for a message. <clears throat> but we're also talking about sources and how do you know that something is, you know, believable and trustworthy? Um, what sources do you believe? And then, and, you know, do you read laterally and, and confirm things? So I've pointed my students to Google News and especially the full coverage to be able to see a gamut of voices. And then also um, it's been purchased. It started at the University of Missouri in their journalism department, but Newsy, uh, N-E-W-S-Y. Uh, I have that app on my Apple TV in my classroom and frequently um, we'll watch that. We also analyze the videos to look at how like, Usually about 45 sec to 60 seconds into it, they show the reporter. But, you know, we talk about A-roll and B-roll video, A-roll's headshot, B-roll is what you don't ever see on this show because we just, we're not that fancy. We just, we just show ourselves talking. But <clears throat> anyway, why people who are creating media do that, et cetera. So great article from Foreign Policy. I know this touches on politics, Dr. Neifer, but do you have any thoughts? <laughs> um, we're living in extraordinary times. And I, I think that's one of the things that we need to approach this, this, uh, um, this situation, uh, with that in mind that, that these are definitely extraordinary times. And I, it, it is interesting that we are in the presidential election year and we are at, you know, year four or five, depending on how you look at it. What I've referred to on the show as a technology correction, this notion that we're reconsidering where technology plugs into our lives because of perception that's gone in the wrong direction. Um, the fact that it's all happening at once will try us as, as a society, as a culture, uh, as, as, as a human race. And we need to step up to that. And I'm so glad, uh, Wes, that, that you're working on that media literacy piece with students, particularly at that age too, where they are definitely, uh, part of the culture enough to where they will hear an extraordinary amount of information, but may or may not be getting an opportunity to be challenged, 
um, to to think about their assumptions, to, to question what they're hearing, to find multiple channels of information. And so, or they or they've questioned so much that they think there's not anything that's valid. You know yeah, that it's that it's all you know it's sort of like that's that's the I think that's the Vladimir Putin. Uh, dream, right? Is that we're just going to give up on truth and decide there, there are no, you know, trusted voices. And uh, anyway, that's, that, that, that's not a good, good place to land. I want to give a shout out. I didn't even notice this because I had, um, I had clicked over on comments or, or on the private chat and not seen. So, uh, we have, uh, Alfonso joining us on Facebook Live. Um, uh, and he shared earlier in the evening, uh, they have 13 campuses in his, in his district and he is the only instructional technologist. And Alfonso, I'll say, if you hang out for the geek of the week, or you can just check it out right now on the, on the, uh, the links, um, some really, I think, excellent links that that's another thing that this is a catalyst for, right? There's a lot of great resource sharing that is happening. It's a great day to be a connected educator, um, and to be, you know, able to crowdsource content and share resources. And Alfonso also points out digital literacy is important to teach during the year and continue from elementary to graduation and even for teachers. And I would say, yes, that is, that is absolutely true. Where should we go next, Dr. Neifer? Uh, let's do some kind of more techier stuff, because this one's really interesting to me. Um, the Verge report on March 9th that iOS 14 reportedly have improved mouse cursor support. And um, I thought I was going to have to be in a couple meetings this week via FaceTime, because I have uh, uh, kind of isolated myself a little bit. I am going to work now each day, but I was going to have um, my partner in crime at work, Mike, uh, carry me into a meeting with uh, FaceTime uh, iPad. So I got my trusty um, iPad 2 out and um, actually, I'm sorry, iPad 2 mini, I should say. So it's a little newer than that. But I was laughing to myself because it's like, man, this thing's feeling a little more sluggish. Like, uh, you know, I'm used to, to iPads lasting a little longer here from a, a sluggishness standpoint. Well, the iPad mini 2 was uh, 2013. So as it turns out, uh, it is nearly seven years old. But um, I have noticed a lot more media lately that that is about kind of the core question of whether or not the iPad, particularly the larger iPads, the 10-inch, the 12-inch iPad, the iPad Pro, whether that can really be a laptop replacement. And one of the, the things I do hear about is that um, a mouse interface um, is considered to be faster or at least closer to what people are used to uh, when you're doing work on an iPad. And the fact that they're adding more mouse support, I think, is interesting. I also think it's interesting that there are apparently trackpads in development right now that's like an external trackpad that you could utilize, not unlike on, on a MacBook. So, Wes, I know that your iPad is, is very rarely not by your side, uh, right? So um, I know that's a, a piece of your, your daily hardware. I know you've also used it as a laptop replacement before, but what is that status in, in 2020 for you? Well, I've tried, uh, not not successfully, uh, we just ordered uh, a collection of brand new seventh generation iPads that actually have a dockable keyboard and will support the full, you know, Apple Pencil 2 experience. There's a Logitech pen Apple Pencil uh, compatible device that is uh, supposed to be absolutely as, as good and it's about half the price. So <laughs> originally we were looking at that and then some uh, Lenovo 500e Chromebooks, I think, or the 500 series, uh, and then doing some comparison because we're, we, we're looking, looking at a device for one-to-one -one for middle school. And I, 
I think that when it comes to the, the context of one-to-one, it, it is absolutely not just what device do you like and you're comfortable. It's about what fits the culture of your school and where your teachers are, right? Because if teachers have been, for instance, as we have steeped in the Google world for, I don't know, I think about a decade, um, you know, we need to be looking at that carefully um, and and then how how familiar, you know, teachers are as, as well as students. Students are going to be able to, to adapt, but I'm drawing this out maybe longer than I should, but I think that the, the iPad is closer today than it ever has been as, as a replacement. I think it's really, and I haven't tried the, the keyboard that we ordered with these. It's essential that we have an excellent keyboarding environment. A couple of years ago, I was at the uh, Atlas conference in California. I went to a panel discussion with a variety of independent school leaders it could have been titled how we didn't do enough professional development and whatever else. And we had to dump iPads and go to Chromebooks because I think there were either two or three of the schools represented. That was their story. Um, and I'm not wanting to just necessarily throw them under the bus for professional development, but I do think it's a much bigger shift in general to ask people to move into an iOS environment than it is to be in a Chrome environment. Yeah. I also think at the end of the day, if you look, if you use SAMR, which, uh, you know, substitution, augmentation, redefin or uh, modification, redefinition, you look at any kind of framework of instructional technology integration where you're moving, you know, into higher order thinking and not, not just a, a replication of, of existing, uh, instruction and, and pedagogy. We can talk transformation all we want, and there's a lot of transformation you can do with all different platforms, but a lot of the technology integration that I have seen historically and continue to see is at a fairly low level, and a Chromebook can do it. You know, uh, Apple has always done a great job preaching, you know, creation. I mean, I'm all about that. You know, show what you know with media. So my desire would be to have the full 360 of tools to be able to because this, this Apple Pencil, this is my Harry Potter wand, all right? I mean, it is phenomenal to be able to create with this. Um, and I don't think that Chrome is yet there with the, the stylus and just from what I've seen. I, in fact, shout out. If anybody has an example, if you're at a school that's doing phenomenal stuff with styluses and Chromebooks, I would like to, to know about yeah. you and what you're using, what you're doing. Um, so I, I think... The, the iPad isn't there yet. And see, Apple is not, this is a strategy and design thing. Apple is not wanting folks to dump any of their devices, right? I am, I have four devices. I'm setting up my new phone, but you know, I, I, from, from Mac in Apple world, you know, it's my MacBook pro, it's my iPhone, it's my iPad. And I don't want to give up any of them. So, um, I think that the iPad is closer than ever. Uh, please ask me that same question maybe in another month or so. Of course, we may not be at school. So, you know, maybe ask me in, in quite a while when, when this coronavirus thing is passed over, we're back at school and we've been there for at least a month. I will have a better perception of what we can do with the latest iPad and devices. But I don't think that from what I've done up to this point, uh, I see it certainly for myself as a laptop replacement. I see it as a secondary device, a powerful device, uh, but not one that, um, that, that, that I have felt for myself personally as a teacher uh, and, a, and a media creator, I wanted to just have as my single carry. Yep. I, it, well, and I have to say, well, I, I do have, uh, um, I, I did have a, a friend of mine, and I won't mention uh, who he is in case he doesn't want, want this information to get out, but, uh, he has a, uh, a spare iPhone sitting around, um, 
uh, his offices for a couple of months and wanted to know if, you know, I wanted to engage in the, you know, Apple challenge now that I am I or that I'm, I'm Google guy. And for me, it's an opportunity where I would like to update to a new, to a newer iPad because it's been, you know, uh, almost seven years since I've purchased the, the current one. Um, and it's, it's slow. It does the job to play video, which is what I, I would generally do with that device, but maybe, maybe investing in, in, in a, in a newer iPad, but I'm also super into the Apple watch, but I, I, that's very tempting to me. Although I would say that I have gone really all in on the Android wear side. And although I'm using older ones, uh, to some positive effect, I, I know that there's more going on, on the Apple watch side, but this notion of being able to carry a light, thin, um, uh, iPad, you know, and I have to say, I have access to the equivalent on, on, on the Chrome environment. This is the Pixel Slate that I purchased, um, on, on Black Friday that I really like a lot. Um, and it, it really does feel more like a laptop than a tablet to me. In fact, I very rarely use it only in tablet mode. I prefer, um, having the keyboard case, uh, attached to it. But yeah, that's something I'm interested in. I'm going to conferences now with just an iPad and, uh, you know, sometimes I'll sketch note or, you know, sure. just, just take hand notes. I've actually been playing with Microsoft OneNote. I've been doing some uh, classroom yeah. observations and, you know, wanted to play with that a little bit. So, yeah. you know, it, but, but if you're, if you're going to tell me right now, that's the only device you're going to let me have. No, you're not, yep. you're not taking away my laptop. Yep. Okay. Um, what, well, actually, I think I had that last article. Yeah. Oh, I'll, let me, let me pick one up. This is from NPR and this is, uh, I think back a little bit. This is March the 2nd, but it's called, it's titled Twitter's head of site integrity on fighting election disinformation. Uh, we've talked a lot about this on the show, the way in which social media platforms have been weaponized and continue to be weaponized in a really, you know, countermeasures and countermeasures to the countermeasures game of cat and mouse where folks are trying to use those tools to give their ideas, sorry, lift and to basically, you know, take a message, have it amplified, whether it's with YouTube, with Twitter, um, you know, other things, Reddit, 4chan. And if it seems to be getting enough attention via bots and algorithms, then real people will start to, you know, amplify that. And, and what the ultimate game is in some cases is really to target journalists and mainstream media then to try to take that message. And so anyway, this is just really interesting about the steps that, tw- that Twitter, you know, continues to take not only um, on the front of, you know, trying to identify not, not shutting down people's free speech, but, you know, when there's exact messages that are going to be coming from, you know, hundreds or thousands of different accounts and they're looking at behavior. Uh, this is something I mentioned. There's a great three part series that Destin, who has the smarter every day podcast. In fact, if you, if you look, if you want to search EdTech SR for smarter every day, you'll, you can find a link to these because it's been a while. But, you know, his series about the ways in which we've got like the smart, I mean, some of the smartest people uh, in the world in Silicon Valley being, you know, compensated very, very well, I might add. I think probably better than all of us who are who are teachers or, you know, connected to some kind of organization, uh, educational organization at this point. They are doing their utmost to try to figure this all out and they're not able to like get this, you know, to be completely solved. So a good article from NPR. And then I think that was in part of a series. And I will add that I listened to that on my Google home because 
My routine continues to be have the Google Home Mini in the bathroom and use my voice to play whatever song I would like or my Spotify playlist. And then I like to say, you know, good morning. And I hear the weather and I hear the, um, you know, my calendar events coming up and then I start to hear news. And so I usually, my first two, I have Reuters. I have the New York Times, the daily and then NPR technology. I usually don't get past that amount of time, but anyway. A good series and glad to see that. Have, have you seen uh, or noticed anything different this year, Dr. Neifer, with the election, social media? Do you think we've, we've come forward from, from where we are in, in 2016 in some ways? Well, I certainly see no advertisements at this point. So, I mean, I, I do remember in 2016 being deluged with advertisements. And I uh, the fact that I, I can't even really think of other than, than direct candidate advertisements, right? I'm talking about third-party ads I've seen almost none of. That that seems to be a very distinct change. And, um, you know, I'm not sure, honestly, if Facebook can survive another presidential election um, that like 2016. Like, I, I don't think they've taken as dramatic of action as I would have Expect them to to be successful in 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 staying off the threat, but at the same time, I, it does feel feel different and better. But I think the the recent uh, coronavirus and COVID nineteen stuff though kind of does highlight the challenge of a world where everyone can be a media pundit, everyone can be a critic, and um, you know we've talked about here in the past. You're probably going to find uh, no more passionate advocate for student voice than, than Wes in, in getting devices in kids' hands and having them create and tell their story. But that always comes at a balance because if anyone can have a platform, anyone can have a platform. And so I, I do feel like the election is better, but like in the last couple of weeks with the amount of, and this is especially very early on in um, the threat to the United States with, with COVID-19, there were some things that were spread around that were, um, you know, miss and disinformation, right? The notion that there was uh, uh, meth that was um, uh, tainted with coronavirus that was actually, that that rumor was spread by a police department of all things and, and within 24 hours had been shared a couple hundred thousand times and that kind of stuff, right? Like that's that's the issue here. And, um, you know, the, the telephone game, which I think is actually a fairly useful um, analogy when, when talking about the spread of misinformation or disinformation on social media, uh, is a lot slower when you don't have the computers. I will do another shout out to anybody who is doing media literacy lessons with students around memes. Uh, I think that is a, a new lesson that I ideally would like to do this, this trimester. Um, we're like, I, I get to see my kids basically like 24 or 25 times every other day. And we're at like lesson seven. So we're almost a third of, of the way through the last trimester. Um, but I, I have been struck, especially with my sixth graders, but some fifth graders too, um, because I have, I think I have over a third. I, I did survey them, so I should get these statistics. But I mean, there's a good number of our, of my kids on TikTok. Uh, they're, they're seeing memes in different places. And so helping students being able to filter things, they see so many things that are jokes. Hey, some things aren't funny, right? But in certain contexts, people are, are saying that these things are funny. And then the way that disinformation gets woven into that, um, you know, it really, it's, it's kind of crazy because we're not living in a virtual reality world yet, like Ready Player One, where we're, we're strapping these headsets on our, our faces. But with the screens, like we each peer into, in some cases, a different part of the world. And so, uh, we've done some parent university sessions. I think since we last talked, we had a, 
I think the best one we've ever had with a panel of four of our high schoolers, two juniors, two seniors, two boys, two girls. And it was focused around social identity and the fear of missing out. It just, I mean, I think the best thing was just getting to, to have a little more insight into the world in which, you know, teens live today and the things that they struggle with, uh, screen time, um, and, and these kinds of issues. So I'm glad, I'm glad that we, um, are having a focus at our school on media literacy and digital citizenship. And I think in addition to the coronavirus collaboration around things that we should be teaching, you know, tools that we should be using and, you know, ways that we can uh, deliver content, interact with students. I think, you know, the media literacy and digital citizenship pieces are pretty important too. Here, here. Going to pick up, I think you put in the article from Recode on uh, Amazon not stopping coronavirus price gouges. Uh, yes, um, and, and then that can lead me, well, sort of to the geek of the week. So let me talk about that. Uh, you've probably seen in national news that um, there have been instances where uh, b- both automated and non-automated logarithms on Amazon have dramatically increased the prices of items that have become suddenly rare during the COVID-19 outbreak. And if you've been to a, a store lately, in fact, tonight I did, I twice a week I usually will pick up uh, groceries and sundries at uh, the local Walmart. In fact, based on your advice, Wes, with the pickup system, which is, is revolutionized, I will never go into a big box store again because I, if I can pull up to my car to the door and do it, it's really, in fact, it's changed my relationship with Walmart as a company because I feel like I can actually... Uh, uh, put up with a trip there, but um, tonight I went, and and to be clear, I am fairly well stocked in toilet paper. But I did go there tonight, and just was going to pick up an extra pack for the heck of it for my my storage. And they were out of everything except marine toilet paper. So that's the stuff that that it's really thin and super quickly breaks down, so they can go through like boat septic systems. Um, and the guy kind of laughed and I said, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. And I said, there's no zombie apocalypse at this point. So I don't need to resort to marine toilet paper. But if you've been on, on, um, Amazon lately, like your local store, they're running out of stuff. Uh, hand sanitizer, disinfecting wipes, toilet papers is, is running low on stock. I actually decided that my strategy was to order on Amazon a big industrial case of toilet paper, like the stuff that you would find in a, you know, in a commercial restroom. So uh, that'll be here on Monday and I, I'm going to laugh. It's probably going to be in a pallet of, of toilet paper, but I'm, I'm prepared, right? For the new currency of 2020. But, um, but in some cases, if they run out, it's not that Am- that, that there's none available. It's that third party sellers will start to increase the price. And a lot of national media has pointed out things like $140 for a four pack of Purell, right? And, um, that that's obviously taking advantage of a national international crisis, right? But Amazon really hasn't taken a lot of action. And the other thing you should also know is that a lot of this is automated. Um, there's a reason why prices qu- change sometimes very quickly in Amazon and where you could put something in your cart on Monday and on Wednesday, the price goes up or down 10, 20, 30%. And it's because a lot of that is an automated process and people don't really get that. And I think that's an important piece um, of, of, of the puzzle. And so one of the things to, to look out for is see who's selling it. If Amazon's not selling to you as a third party seller, there's a chance of charging you more than you need to. You may be willing to pay that depending on what the 
particular uh, uh, item is on Amazon. But you want to be cautious of that because I think that's an important part of, you know, kind of buyer beware in, in, in 2020. And, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that if it's selling out on, on your local store shelves, there's a decent chance that's probably also selling out on um, uh, online as well with major retailers. We just need to be cautious and, and also uh, you know, be a good consumer of this. I will show you the animal. <laughs> so, yes, thank you for the updates. I think you need to take a picture of your uh, toilet paper when it, when it shows up. So yeah, I will. Moose was, oh, my gosh, oh, he got it again. No. Yeah, this is what he was eating, a tea bag. So... And he just snagged it again. So this guy has uh, gained 20 pounds since January the 30th, and we just took him in. So, yes, Moose makes his, makes his appearance, hopefully without disconnecting yeah. the webcast. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. He, well, uh, but, boy, puppies are some busy or, or some work, so make no mistake about that. Um, in fact, I, you may hear mine barking in the background. So I, I did. Um, I heard him talking. Yeah. Three, well, three, we're three minutes to the top of the hour. Wes, uh, let's do our Geeks of the Week. What do you have for us this week? All right. Well, a couple things. Number one, I've uh, been working the last two weeks on an instructional support website. I am excited that um, I'll, you know, I'll be aligning some colors to our school's uh, crest here in the next few days. But this gave me an opportunity. The website is support.cassidy.org. Um, and really the constituent part I'm building out is just going to be the teacher part. The parent part, I think as well as the student part, is going to be all behind our, our login and in the walled garden. But I'm very thrilled to have gotten the green light to continue building this out publicly on a, on a Google site. And there was a, a, a school in China who I will properly attribute on here because I don't have it right now. But I really like what, what this site lets you do when you say you're a teacher is, what are you using? Google Classroom, Seesaw, or we're using what's called Blackboard, or we call it MyCassidy. And then there's um, a question. What is your instructional goal or need to deliver to delivery, interaction, assessment, or support? And then I am putting resources there underneath each one of them. And then I've actually built out modules that fit in because some of the modules go in more than one category, uh, for instance, screencasting. So I'm really uh, excited to have this opportunity to not only share resources, but try to envision how can I use, I think it's called layered complexity design principles, sort of like the click wheel iPad or voice thread. These are my good examples where they, there's a lot of choices, but you don't see all the choices at the beginning, right? Cause it's too overwhelming. So anyway, that has been a work of work, work in progress for the last couple of uh, weeks. And then also uh, a couple of the related links for coronavirus. Uh, Carl Hooker, who was on the show last week, uh, held a future ready Twitter chat. And then he put all of the, of the best resources into a wakelet for getting ready for coronavirus or just doing, you know, remote learning. And then Seesaw, which is a wonderful learning journal that we're using in many of our classes. I'm teaching with it and all of our both uh, elementary and preschool, uh, pre-K through uh, third grade primarily are using it a lot. And they have a great uh, Seesaw for home learning. And to your point, Dr. Neifer, some great resources under their administrator tab about wellness, about boundaries, about how we need to take care of ourselves and encourage our colleagues to take care of themselves in this time. 
Yep, and I couldn't agree more. And also, watch out for your 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 colleagues too. I mean, if you you're listening to the EdTech Situation Room, you're pretty tech savvy. Um, so I I would guess that you'll adapt to this fairly well. Some of your colleagues are going to be terrified of this, right? And reach out to them and assure them that that this is not this is not something that you were expected to pick up to this point, right? Like I'm sure that 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 uh, that you're in districts that have done a decent job of preparing teachers to use technology effectively in the classroom. But what you're being asked to do here is different. And, um, and you need to acknowledge that and, and offer as much support as you can. And, and by the way, I, um, I will do this with, with, uh, colleagues in, in face-to-face schools in Montana, like reach out to Wes and I on Twitter. If you, uh, you know, if you have a question or a tool recommendation that you want us to make, um, you know, reach out to, to folks that, 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 that think about this stuff and let's all work together on this. Cause they're all our students. They're all, um, our, our neighbors. And so we need to join together to figure this out now together. Amen. So, um, the last thing I would share with you, this article, I, I put it originally in, in the, uh, the show notes as a, as a regular article to talk about, but actually I think it's more interesting than, than an educational piece. I think it's a broader commentary in technology, but there's an extraordinary article, um, from, uh, Maya Kristoff on, uh, she's writing on Medium, why all the Warby Parker clones are now imploding. And Warby Parker, if you're not aware of it, is an eyeglass merchant. They were one of the first, what's called DTC, DTC companies, direct to consumer, companies, in their case, they sell one thing, or they used to sell just one thing, which was cheap eyeglasses. And what they figured out was that there's one manufacturer that makes almost all the eyeglass frames on Earth, and um, they sell them under various brand names um, at extraordinary markups. And so they sought to take uh, eyeglasses, which are... Um, uh, you know, can be really expensive and offer them at $99 a piece, including, um, uh, panes in the eyeglasses and then, um, sell them online, uh, without physical stores. And that's, was the creation of Warby Parker. I love them partly because they have kind of the retro glasses thing. I figure if I'm going to wear glasses, I want them, you know, I might as well have them, you know, clunky on my head because that's the, the, I think it looks good with my big round noggin. But the bottom line is, is that, um, I've get better quality glasses there and I feel more satisfied with the transaction and a a lot of people have tried to reproduce this. You've probably heard of Harry's that sells shaving supplies and the Dollar Shave Club and Casper mattresses and Purple mattresses. And there's dozens of these. There's one called Brandless that recently um, has shifted away from um, uh, kind of household staples of $3 a pack to CBD, which I think is kind of funny. But um, that article talks about why is it so hard for these uh, uh, clones of Warby Parker to make it. And the answer is almost exclusively customer acquisition. Like it is extremely difficult when you're selling one product to acquire and keep customers because how often are you buying beds in your life? Right. And I must admit, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Casper mattress, uh, wannabe customer. I've wanted one for years. I haven't need a mattress in eight years, right? So I, I would consider myself a likely candidate to buy a Casper mattress, but I haven't needed one. So, you know, so I'm not a customer until I suddenly need a mattress. So a great article. It kept me very enthralled. I usually can't make it through long technical economic articles like that anymore. Uh, my intention span is, is a little shorter than it used to be, but great article. So in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. Well, Wes, where can the people find you online? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I periodically post some articles, share some podcasts. My media literacy curriculum is MDTech. 
Mike.Cassidy.org. And now you can check out all the instructional technology, remote learning resources that I have been curating and sharing will continue to build in, I think, the days and weeks ahead. And that is on support.cassidy.org. Okay. And I am Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, which is where I like to engage with folks. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org. And, and watch out on Twitter because I, now that we've been talking for the last hour, I think I want to start, um, at least, uh, trying to contribute some, some, some positive advice into the, the, the kind of, uh, uh, Twitter sphere because I do think, um, that, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing right now for good reasons. It's, it's, a, it's a traumatic situation that we're in. It's evolving um, very quickly. But, you know, like a lot of you are going to be maybe thrust into something you don't want to be thrust into. Let's work together to try and make it the best situation possible for our kids. One other thing, and that reminds me, Jamie, I think it's Cassip is how you say his name. He's the educational evangelist for Google. He had a fantastic nine-part uh, Twitter rant last night that was talking about, you know, his daughter and how with the high speed internet they have at home and the device they have and the nice desk and, and the food and everything, like she'll be fine. But the number of students out there who, who are not going to be eating very much because they yeah. go to school to eat and who don't have a situation at home where they're going to, you know, be able to learn digitally. You know, you mentioned Seattle and some, some packet plans, but uh, I think it's a good time to reflect on educational equity. And I will put a link to Jamie Cassip's uh, Twitter uh, post about that. And, and anyway, that's a, you know, it's a little serious issue to, to end with, but your thought brought that to mind. So I will look forward to seeing your tweets because the wisdom which can come from the knife for home out to the world via the tools at our fingertips. It's going to amaze us all folks. Let's just get started. You know, hold on to your hats in the next <laughs> couple of weeks for what you're going to be able to access. Well, good. I'll get working on that right now. But this thing here is not wisdom from, from my Twitter account. It is the Ethics Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast. And by the way, thank you to all the great guest hosts that, that, that sat in my chair in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've listened to two, we have three or two. There were two. We, I took a week okay. off. So I've listened to both of them. So excellent, uh, uh, excellent, uh, episodes of the podcast, but I am back and I will be back next week. Uh, we are a Wednesday night podcast. We broadcast live. Uh, you can get links on Twitter or Facebook. We use StreamYard to, to, to live stream out to many places online. Um, it is at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Uh, uh, Central Time, and like 2 or 3 or Daylight Saving Time, something, something, something UTC. If you don't want to watch us live, though, you can always go to us on our, our YouTube channel, uh, download a smaller copy of, of, of the audio file at our website, edtechsr.com, where you also find the show notes, or you can find us in all the major podcast directories. Uh, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Tech Situation Room. Uh, have a great week. Thanks. <laughs>